VOCM presents Open Line. The opinions expressed on this show are not necessarily those of the station. And now your host, Patty Daly. Well, all right, and good morning to you. Thank you very much for tuning into the program. It's Wednesday, May the 4th. This is Open Line. I'm your host, Patty Daly, and Greg Smith is back in the producer's chair again today. He'll be the voice on the other end of the line when you call to get in the queue. So if you're in the St. John's metro region, the number to dial is 273-5211 or elsewhere, toll-free long distance, 1-888-590-VOCM. You know what it's, 8626. All right, way to go. Growlers got it done in Game 7 after relinquishing a 3-1 series lead over the Trois-Rivières Lyon. They beat him last night 5-2. Good stuff. So now they move off to the second round versus the Reading Royals in Pennsylvania for games one and two down there. Begin Saturday night and then back home to the Mary Brown Center for games three, four, and five if necessary. All right, and for those of you keeping an eye on the NHL playoffs, and even if you don't have a team in it and hoping that the Cup returns to Canada, Calgary got off to a good start last night, one nothing shutout, victory over Dallas. That's a really kind score because the Flames absolutely pummeled the Stars last night, so they're off to that lead. The last time a Canadian-based team won the Stanley Cup, of course... 1993, the Montreal Canadiens, very much unlike the successes or lack thereof this year. Just for information tidbit, the 93 Canadians are also the last team to win with uh, only North American-born skaters, players, period. The last team to win without a Russian or a Scandinavian player. Okay, there we go. All right, here's a great one. It was 100 years ago today in 1922 that Eugenie Clark was born. She's better known possibly as the Shark Lady, a seminal figure in American conservation, did a bunch of barrier-breaking research and dispelled myths surrounding sharks. They were referred to as ferocious and unintelligent monsters. She was the author of a couple of notable books, Lady with a Spear, 1953, The Lady and the Shark in 1969, plus an additional 175 scientific articles. Lots of cool stuff that she has uh, figured out in her career. She also discovered that a fish called the Moses Sole produces a natural shark repellent. It's since been employed by researchers around the world, aiming to prevent harm- harmful interactions between sharks and humans. Her observation of sleeping sharks proved that they didn't need to move to breathe. So, a very cool career. She's actually got a bunch of species of fish named after her, one, of course, known as Genie's dogfish, which I can picture in my mind's eye. Okay, so it was also today in history, uh, in 1953, that Ernest Hemingway was awarded the Pulitzer Prize for All Man in the Sea. And, of course, some shark-related information or content in that notable book. If you went to Pius X and you're my vintage, you read All Man in the Sea. So it tells the story of Santiago, an aging and experienced fisherman. He hasn't had any luck in catching a fish for some 84 days. So he takes his skiff out, and on the 85th day of his unlucky streak, he hooks on a massive fish, and he thinks this is a marlin. So he was afraid to tie the line to the boat just in case there was a sudden jerk that would snap the line because he had to drag that marlin and he'd been so unlucky for so long. So for two days and two nights, he held his rope, the line, for, with his back, shoulders, and hands, of course, to great physical damage. So the marlin drags him further offshore, and the dead marlin now leaving the trail of blood brings upon the sharks, one of which he kills himself. He's hooking dogfish and dolphin fish along the way to eat, to keep up his sustenance so he can bring that marlin in. Earlier about dawn the next day, he did indeed make it to shore, and now, of course, the marlin is dead. Some of the tourists in the area thought it was a shark, but anyway, the old man in the sea, Pulitzer Prize, it actually went on to win the Nobel Prize in Literature in 1954 as well. Okay, let's keep going here. 
So there's been some people debating whether or not the provincial government should release the entirety or components of the $5 million Rothschild report. And now, at least for now, we know that that's not going to happen. It's been now labeled a cabinet record. And the, under the, uh, the Access to Information Act, Section 27 says cabinet confidences can be kept withheld from the public. All right. It doesn't really jibe with comments coming from Premier Fury in the past where he said access to information request could see the report released with some redactions, commercial sensitivities. What I find interesting in some of the pushback here is that I don't think there's a single member of the House of Assembly or the general public that wants to see any commercially sensitive information released that could jeopardize the value if and when the province decides to privatize or to sell off any of its assets. All right. Here's the question. Do the recommendations from Rothschild line up with recommendations from uh, Moya Green's report, the Premier's economic recovery team? You know, it does not jeopardize anything if they tell us this little tiny bit of info. Well, in accordance with Green and Rothschild, we are going to consider privatizing the NLC. That doesn't betray any confidences, any commercial sensitivities. It doesn't bring upon lowball bids. If they say, in line with Green, we're going to talk about divesting our oil and gas assets. Okay. There's, again, that doesn't jeopardize a single thing. Because if they go to the market, then we will all know that they are looking to divest one asset or another. Privatize motor vehicles, sell Bull Arm, sell Marble Mountain, sell off the NLC, divest in the oil and gas assets. And of course, again, we'll know if they go to pursue a 10% equity stake in Bay Nord. So to withhold it in full is really not good. It's just not. Nobody needs to see every single thing under the covers. Nobody wants to see us devalue an asset to see lowball bids. Of course not. Just a couple of bare-bones pieces of information. At least that would allow some realistic debate, case by case, on the floor of the House of Assembly, exactly where it belongs, so that we can hear some justification. We can have some comparison about what it costs to operate an LC, because we already know what the revenue stream looks like, record-setting last year over $200 million. We already know the province is trying to sell Marble Mountain, has seen very little interest in. We know there's going to be ongoing conversation with some additional public-private partnerships. So to withhold it in full, call it in a cabinet document, is not great as uh, oh, That's just my personal opinion. I don't know if you want to chime in on it, but we're not going to get a look. And, you know, if the premier made the comments at the time that there will be some information, albeit with some redactions, it was already destined to be a cabinet document. Where else would it be read and adjudicated, evaluated and discussed? but in the cabinet room. So anyway, you want to talk about Rothschild and what that means? I know, you know, for instance, NAEP had a advertising campaign talking about rejecting in full selling off the NLC assets. And people do obviously lean on the fact that it returns so many, a couple hundred million dollars to the provincial coffers. It's not like you do away with all that. There'll still be government tax on all the products sold at the NLC. So it's a cost comparison about workers' comp and uh, the real estate assets and operational costs and remuneration and benefits packages. All of that has to be included in some sort of reasonable discussion about what's the right thing, wrong thing to do with that. Anyway, let's talk about it if you're so inclined. Also, one piece of legislation that's been in the work for five years has not been worked on yet formally inside the House of Assembly. It is in committee, but this is about pay equity legislation. It also gets some curious comments coming from various corners. So, Minister Responsible Pam Parsons, I'm not so sure that some of her comments are 
I don't know if it's appropriate or what have you, but she's talking about the fact that there will be minimal, costly legislative work here and minimal benefit for women if this legislation is tabled and passed in the House. Okay, that's not an exact quote, but anyway, let's go. The reference is to the fact that women earn 66 cents on the dollar versus men in this province. It's the worst discrepancy in the country. I will absolutely understand the fact that some of that is because of the domination of women in certain low-paying fields. That absolutely contributes to it. All the other Atlantic provinces have had that legislation in place for decades. But here's the thing. I don't know how Minister Parsons thinks that this is going to be potentially costing see some legal battles. If you're working in an office setting, for instance, a man and a woman with comparable education, training, skills, performance, seniority, there is no reason under the sun that the woman should be earning less than the man. So I know, okay, if we have so many more women than men working in daycare settings and in home care and in entry-level jobs in retail or fast food or what have you, okay, that absolutely does contribute to the disparity. But I don't see the downside or the potential legal challenges if there's going to be pay equity legislation put forward. Anyway, it's been in the works for some five years and no hint as to when it may indeed see the light of day. All right, a couple of better stories. And let's talk about that. So it looks like Cornerbrook is anticipating their busiest cruise season ever. There's 24 ships on the docket. August is going to be a particularly busy month. I'm sure that'll bring a boon to the region. You know, there's always been controversy, including in the city of St. John's, about just exactly what is the value of the cruise industry. It may not see a big swath of money spent upon their very quick visit as they they leave the vessel for a quick look around, maybe pick up some mementos, memorabilia, when they shop in the downtown core. But the real upside down the road may be when they say to each other as they go back onto their cruise ship, boy, I wish I had more time to spend here. And we know the beauty of the Bay of Islands and the west coast of the province, and yes, lots of attractive features here on the east coast as well. So that would be another additional, and I think tangible, upside to cruise ship activity. I wish I had more than my four hours here. I'd love to come back, and maybe someday they will. And then you look at the St. John's Airport Authority. Revenue down again, uh, for obvious reasons why. But I think there's a way to be bullish on what this season may bring, not only with the appearance of now the car-sharing Apatoro. Marine Atlantic bookings are way up. Hopefully we'll see some increased uh, air traffic uh, as well. Air traffic or passenger traffic via air, I guess the right way to put that. But you want to talk about the pending season, Let's do it. <laughs> I, I do. Look, I get it. When some of the issues that are brought forward that you don't want to hear, you don't want to talk about, but they're coming whether or not we like it. And that's regionalization. I got an email that was r really quite cross, and it was referring to the fact that, you know, will you give it up on regionalization? I'm not paying more to get uh, no more additional services. Oh, I get it. But we also have to look at some very fundamental issues that are unfolding today as to what it might mean in steps toward cooperation, collaboration, or regionalization. A good example, and a real one, is up in Lab City, Wabush. So the Mike Adams Recreational Complex in Wabush closed in January after 50 years of operation. Lab City was unwilling to contribute anymore until the residents had an opportunity to vote on amalgamation. But now there's a proposal out there where both towns will keep their identities and their governments intact and come up with some cost sharing. So that's a step towards what I think many people will consider regionalization. Also, again, another real tangible uh, 
potential for regionalization is what they call the Conception Harbour Project. So, Mike Doyle, the mayor out in Harbour, Maine, Chappas Cove, Lakeview, and uh, Mayor Doyle, if you're available, please join us today. They're cooperating with three other towns, Avondale, Colliers, and Conception Harbour, even if it comes down to collapsing their current waste management contract. Mayor Doyle says it could save his municipality $125,000 over five years. So do away with four contracts, maybe bring in a longer-term contract with one service provider and savings across the board. So it doesn't have to be that we haul down all the signs of welcome to X town. It doesn't need to be that way. It could be just looking down the road and realizing that if we don't get out in front of it, we're going to have a bunch of chaotic situations that require further cooperation and cost sharing on different services, one or the other. But this person who said, give it up, can't, won't, <laughs> give it up. All right, so people are making lots of choices about how they spend their hard-earned money. You don't need me to tell you that. Every time you reach into your pocket, it costs more and more for almost every single thing we touch. Same thing goes for the rapid test kit. Minister Haggy says that other provinces have regretted flinging the doors wide open and making them free for all hands, as opposed to what we do in this province with over 5 million that have been distributed for schools and long-term care facilities, health care workers, correctional officers, the like. Maybe when schools close, there'll be more access to free kits. But I'd like to know more about what the, uh, the, the minister means about other provinces are regretting their approach. If you have folks here who can't afford a variety of things, they're likely not going to put much money towards rapid test kits. And if some students who just got another a reload this week, you wonder just how many kits are sitting in some homes that are not being used. You know, I saw someone send me a screen grab of someone had a package of five or something like a Gigi. That's not what they're intended for. So we got to figure out a better way. What do you think? Can we do it on the phone out there, Greg? All right. So it's Mental Health Awareness Week. This is a really curious issue. We know the province is blending the Newfoundland Labrador English-speaking school district into the department. We know that there's moved towards amalgamating the four regional health authorities into one. And in further transition, the mental health crisis line, as of this Monday, the 2nd of May, is transitioning into the NL Health Line 811. So if you call any of the numbers that you have for the mental health crisis line, the 737-4668, right, and the toll-free, it's going to be forwarded off to 811. Okay. You know, trying to streamline service is always a good idea. But when 811 is already bombarded, and some of the crisis line opportunities now gone by the wayside, forwarded into 811, does that mean they prioritize a mental health call over something else? Because when you attach the word crisis with mental health, they, whoever it is that calls, needs to speak with someone right away. So I don't understand. And once again, the minister, feel free to explain to me why this is a good idea and whether there's going to be some prioritizing certain calls, including mental health crisis, when they call 811 for that particular type of service. Anyway, they say there's no changes to mental health and addiction emergency services and the availability as a result of the transition. But how does that work if 811 is already as busy as it is? And, of course, they have an update now that the new mental health and addictions facilities built on the floodplain over at the health science complex on schedule and on budget. And I don't know why I do this to myself, but I'm going to do it. A lot of political and social concern with the stories coming from the United States and the leaked Supreme Court opinion on Roe v. Wade. Of course, that's the, the law regarding access to an abortion. 
you know, you'll have people say, well, why do we care what's happening in other countries? Well, because, number one, empathy doesn't stop at the border. Number two, there's no reason to believe that what we see happening south of the border doesn't make its way into the political discourse and into societal debate in our country. It's also important to recognize the fact that there's never been a Supreme Court ruling in this country, a majority ruling, that enshrines in the charter a woman's right to an abortion. We simply rely on the fact that it's not illegal based on the 1988 R versus Morgenthaler decision. So there's a difference between the two. You're going to see some political debate. It's curious that like 82 members of the Conservative Party voted against doing away with any restrictions. And of course, access to an abortion is an important conversation. I know this becomes extremely emotional. I know it. And this is in no, or by no means, an attempt to besmirch one political ideology or political leaning or another. But we have to be honest with the conversation. Historically speaking, if abortions become more restricted, less access, or illegal, the numbers of abortions don't go down. They're simply done in less safe conditions. Someone tried to argue with me yesterday that it's simply not true. There's no such thing as a safe abortion because a life is terminated. The baby, that's right. But if we're talking about the overall health and safety of the person carrying the child, then how do we not have a clear and distinct focus on it? And I'm also told, you know, if you're a man or you don't have a uterus, then your opinion is of no value in this conversation. I'm not trying to inject my opinion on it, but I do think that we have to have a legitimate discussion about what might be in the offing. There was also a a motion that was brought forward by a Quebec bloc member yesterday that got a bunch of no's outside or inside the House of Commons. So it's pretty clear. It's Bloc Québécois MP Christine Normandin. She put forward a motion seeking unanimous consent from the House to affirm, affirm the importance of a right to choose. And a bunch of no's rained out. So even these most complex emotional conversations you know we used to say we can't talk about religion in polite mixed uh, company and things like abortion should be left between uh the person carrying the child and their doctor but of course it becomes part of the political discourse it becomes part of the social commentary so to reject it or to refuse to talk about it gets us absolutely nowhere and i think we're naive to think that there may not be some additional conversation, and look no further than the fact that the interim leader of the Conservative Party of Canada, uh, Candace Bergen yesterday, she told her members to not speak out on this issue. A couple of them just ignored it. Michelle Rempel, uh, she went out and made a comment on it. And uh, Patrick Brown, who's running for the leadership, he made some sort of news release on it, which was pretty dodgy. But anyway, if you want to take it on today, as much as it puts me in an awkward spot, I'm happy to do it because I think it's an important conversation that has to be has to ha- take place in public. Your opinion is welcome on, on that. We're on Twitter. We're VOCM Open Line. Your opinion is welcome there, too, I suppose. Uh, our email address is openlinevocm.com. Let's get a bit of a toe-tap and tunage going before we come back and speak with you. Today in 1963, the crystals were soaring off the charts with Tadu Ron Ron. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's begin on the top of the board, line number one. Good morning, Sabrina. You're on the air. Good morning, Pat. Um, <laughs> phoning regarding our lovely health care system and uh, what's available to low-income families. Um, I moved to Gander the end of January. Um, 
I left an unhealthy relationship on Fogo Island, and I decided to move here for my for my health. Um, I got diagnosed with cancer two years ago in July, three types of cancer. And to say since that happened is it's been a whirlwind of appointments and everything else. <clears throat> so, but today the medical transportation program for the low-income residents. Okay. So I had to travel to St. John's very frequently for my cancer appointments, my plastic surgeon appointments, and now I've been recently diagnosed with lupus. <clears throat> I need to get to a rheumatologist in St. John's. So it's an 18-month waiting list. So I finally got a call a couple of weeks ago. Um, yep, we have an appointment for you. So the day I got my appointment, I emailed medical transport. Um, this is when my appointment is. This is all the information you need. Um, I didn't hear anything back. So I called them the beginning of last week. Um, nobody looked at my file. So I'm like, okay, guys, light a fire under somebody. Somebody look at my file because I need to get to this appointment next week. It's my quality of life. The lupus is attacking my lungs. It's attacking my joints. I have no quality of life. I'm in pain all the time. Um, <clears throat> so this morning I called again because I hadn't heard from it anything. They requested the information. It was back to the Monday morning. Nobody even looked at my file pad. They didn't even look at it. So now I have this appointment tomorrow morning that there's an 18-month waiting list to see this doctor, and I have no funds to get there because I can't afford it. Like m many other low-income families, um, I'm forced to be on social assistance because I can't work because of my health. Um, they give me a whopping $322 every two weeks to feed myself and two teenage boys and pay all of our bills. So where's the money coming from for me to go to St. John's to see this doctor? When you say you call, who do you call? Because it used to be on income support. The medical transportation oh. program is what you have to call. Right. The, but Okay. What I was going to say <laughs> is when folks who are income, income support clients, they used to have to go through uh, education, skills, and labor. But now it's right inside the Department of Health Community Services. So I have a couple of contacts that I think have been helpful for some. I don't know if you're calling someone who really doesn't have their finger on the pulse of the file. I, I don't know because I don't know exactly who you spoke to. But the email address has been effective. I don't know if you use uh, email. And I, I also have a toll-free number that goes right to the department who is handling income support clients now versus what it used to be inside of education, skills, and labor. Okay. Yeah, no, I have those numbers, and I've availed of it every single appointment. Now, every single appointment I've gone to, I didn't get my money till I was either on the way back from my appointment or already back in Gander. Not everybody have parents that I have that can loan them the money until they get their money back. You know what I mean? I'm I very lucky that I have family support. Not everybody is in the same boat as I am. I have to advocate for other people too. Like, this is ridiculous. Like, two weeks they say they need notice. I've given them that at least, sometimes more, and it comes down to the day before the appointment and sorry, no decision has been made. And even if it has been, sorry, it takes three days to deposit the money in your account. So they expect me now. Oh, and I said to them, I said, well, I know you, um, well, if you can't send me the funds, I said, just get me and my two kids bus tickets in and out. Oh, sorry, we can't provide bus tickets for your children. We can only provide it for you. So I said, okay, I'm a single mother in Gander of a 12-year-old and a 14-year-old who I'm obviously not going to leave overnight by themselves. What do you expect me to do? 
And she was blatantly ignorant and rude to me on the phone. Well, that's not our problem. That's a you problem, not a me problem, pretty much. It is absolutely disgusting how people are being treated that are sick. Okay. So, I mean, this has been a big issue, maybe even more so in uh, certain parts of the province, including Labrador, for instance. Because I'm of the from free- Labrador City, so I understand. Sure. That's one of the reasons I moved to Newfoundland. Would you like to try to send them an email? Okay, because sometimes, you know, unfortunately, when we see the move away from phone services and counter services and the reliance on, you know, the digital communication, sometimes this might be maybe a little bit more efficient and a little less frustrating. So it's an easy one. It's just MTAP, M-T-A-P. T-A-P? Yeah, so M-T-A-P at gov.nl.ca. MTAP at gov. Yeah. Yeah. I don't really see there being like, I mean, I've been even trying to contact my MHA about this. It goes straight to voicemail. Like, it seems I can't can't get ahead. And if now if I have to miss this appointment tomorrow, which looks like it's going to happen unless I get another loan off my parents, which now I don't know how I'm ever going to pay them back because I owe them thousands of dollars now for my medical trips just since I moved to Gander. Um, I, I really don't know. Like, it'll be another 18 months to two years before I can get another appointment with this doctor. This is not acceptable. People in this province are suffering. Like, I suffer. I don't know the last time I got a good night's sleep because the pain is so bad in my joints in the nighttime. I mean, it's... I'm as I'm Sabrina, I wish you good luck with this uh, initial task of trying to get some information from the Medical Transportation Assistance Group, and I wish you well with your health. Fire off that email with some urgency attached to the subject line, and let us know if you have any luck. Will do. Thank you, Pat. You're welcome, Sabrina. Take good care. Bye. All right. Bye-bye. You know, you had to... I read a story yesterday about a woman who... Uh, was forced to go to the cupboard and take some expired insulin. You know, she's got about $7,000 worth of uh, medical bills associated with her ostomy supplies and her insulin. She used to qualify for the uh, province's uh, pharmacy program, but uh, she doesn't any longer. You know, we have people out there making some pretty dis- distinct choices. And I know there's no such thing as a free lunch, and there's no such thing as free health care either, if we're going to be honest about it. But there has been repeated work done on expansion of pharmacare and or universal pharmacare. It comes with a big price tag, but if you took the time to read the most recent report done by Dr. Eric Hoskins and his team delivered to the Senate of Canada, they talk about long-term savings. It's there. I mean, some things, you know, say, well, it pays for itself. I don't go so far as to use that oversimplified line, but the upside and acknowledging the reality of how many Canadians whether it be insulin or other prescription drugs, they're choosing to take a half a dose or not taking it at all or not refilling their prescription. And consequently, what happens more often than not is that they become so ill that they become hospitalized. Any way to avoid hospitalization, which is, you know, proactive healthcare versus reactive healthcare, which is what we do here, the most expensive thing in the country is a night in the hospital. Doing what we can do to offset the numbers of people that unnecessarily find themselves so ill, whether it be access to a family doctor, or 
choosing to take half a dose for not refilling their prescription at all. You know, these are big, and I think national conversations. I know we're pointing the fingers where they belong at this moment in time at the province, but I think this is a national conversation. Report after report after report says the same thing. We're the only modern first world country with universal uh, health care that doesn't have universal pharmacare with a population over 10 million. The only one. Let's take a break. Don't go away. Weekdays on VOCM, it's Open Line with your host, Patty Daly. Join the conversation each morning from 9 a.m. to noon on your VOCM. We get people talking. Welcome back to the show. Let's try line number two. Mark, you're on the air. Yes, uh, Patty, good morning. Good morning to I'd you. Like to, uh, I'd like to advocate this morning for a group of people that have been very instrumental in building our province and our country, and that's our seniors. And why I'm sure most seniors appreciate the 10% increase from the province and indeed the federal government, it really falls short when you look at where we've gone in the last year in particular when it comes to food. And you and your preamble was talking about the, the connection between health and, 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 and our health care costs. And when you look at seniors, I mean, eating healthy is expensive, and that cost has gone up by 40 or 50 percent. And it affects seniors really, really uh, urgently, and, and the cost of health care will go up. The other thing you look at, and I look at the other, uh, second thing, is gas. I mean, to fill up a gas tank now, it's 40 to $50 more per tank. And a lot of our seniors live in rural Newfoundland and commute an hour or so. So they're, they're really affecting the cost. And why 20% increase is appreciated, I'm sure, it's falls short. Uh, uh, big time. And especially the seniors that are, are just under old age pension and their supplement and just a small Canada pension that have no other pension income. They're really struggling as well as low income workers and the lady that was on previous to, to my call. Uh, and government always has the argument that that's all we can afford. And, and I buy that because we're taxed to debt. But there's something we're not really doing. We all just finished an important thing. We all filed our taxes. And what always strikes me, uh, Patty, is that when you file your taxes, it's really not a fair system. Because in our province, for example, if you earn over $190,000, you stay at 18.3%. So if I make a million dollars, I still pay 18.3%. So why haven't we advocated to have the fees go up more so that a person making three or 400000 is paying 20% or 22%? And there's that extra revenue that we could have to bring back to our seniors and people who need it the most. Because the gap between the rich and the poor is just widening all the time because we haven't adjusted our tax system in 100 years. And when you look at the federal government, Patty, I mean... If you make over $216,000, you only pay 33%. And to me, that's uh, alarming, and I think we need to start advocating. Uh, the middle income can't carry the tax burden anymore, and I think we need a more equal tax and fair tax system in our country, in our province, and that's where that additional money can come from so we can give seniors the 40% and the low-income workers more income because that's what they're going to need to survive on. I think that's a federal conversation more, the, more than provincial, to be honest with you. The top 5% earners uh, in this province pay a whopping line share of the tax collected. It's just a fact. I know people don't like to hear it, but that's simply true. And plus, inside of that bracket are a bunch of professionals that... You know, we're talking about the shortage of doctors and they're in demand and quite mobile. I'm not trying to defend not increasing taxes because I'll get to my federal point now in a second. You know, if inside of that tax bracket, 
is a bunch of doctors who all of a sudden now find themselves paying more taxes. All the other additional concerns with trying to recruit, retain a doctor in this province, we might indeed create a problem unnecessarily. There has been lots of federal conversation about uh, progressive tax schemes, and that's what we do have in this country. But I think what we avoid talking about, which we should, is not only the tax uh, proposed by the NDP for the super wealthy, those with uh, wealth of $20 million or more. If we really want to do more in so far as collecting taxes goes, we shut down the loopholes for all of the offshore banking. I mean, the billions and billions of dollars that are not paid in taxes because large corporations, wealthy individuals, they they farm their money outside the country, all kinds of loopholes that could be closed. If we did that, if we just focus on that for the next five years, we probably wouldn't have the same concerns we have with the level of taxation because those are the folks that are not paying their fair share. They're paying their fair share insofar as what they file, but not all of the money's coming in on their side, corporately or individually, is making it into the CRA. So I think if you even started with that, you'd cure a lot of the tax ills. I agree with that, Patty. But as you know, as far as the doctors thing, I mean, if if the tax system was across the province, it, it wouldn't really matter as much because uh, every province would have a similar system. Well, that's why I said, you know, it's a federal issue that I think if you're going to deal more with the progressive tax uh, situa- situation, then you'll have a level playing field. If you try to think that the province should jack up its scale at certain levels of earners, it's a little bit more complicated than I think just sign- assigning a percentage. Oh yeah, it's complicated, but it's something that that's going to have to be looked at because there's no, there's not very many other ways you can get new revenue in the pot so you can distribute it to those who need it the most. Well, there is that's though. That's our problem. There is. There's lots of ways. I mean, we don't have a scarcity of supply. We have a problem with distribution. There's lots of money in this country. So if we had a careful look at what all of the social assistance, social income support programs, how much they cost, who's on them, why they're on them, figure that out, restructure it. If we had a careful look at how we contribute to things like CPP and how that money gets distributed, uh, then I think we can do better. You know, there's a couple of reforms that are in the offing that I think are going to make things easier. The same people who think that, well, seniors are struggling, low-income workers are struggling, people on fixed income are struggling, they're the same, well, they're not the same, there's a bunch of people inside that Venn diagram who will also push back against the concept of a guaranteed income or universal benefit, basic income, those types of things which have an upside if we want to just break them down and have some debates as opposed to saying, I like it or I hate it. I like it or I hate it is whether or not you like a flavor of ice cream, not about big important things like your finances. So anyway, I think those those changes need to happen. We have, again, I'll use that phrase, we don't have a scarcity of supply, we have a problem with distribution. Yeah, I, I agree with that. And the, the guaranteed income supplement, I think over 25 years ago, Clyde Wells was talking about that, and we haven't moved anywhere on it. Yeah, well, the province just unanimously voted to uh, strike a committee and to evaluate it here in the province. I think there's going to be some additional conversation on the national front on that one as well. And, you know, people will say, well, it's socialism. Okay, so let's just paint the picture on both sides of the ledger. Even if we talk about just health care, just health care, The most important piece of work being done here in the province, in my estimation, is understanding how and why people are ill and needing to engage with healthcare. And that is the so-called social determinants of health. If we have a better understanding, if you're a man or a woman, your age, what part of the province you live in, your level of education, the amount of money you have coming in the door, amount of dependence that you have, if you factor all those things in, we'll probably do better to save money to spend in other areas. 
like increasing a benefit to or expanding the numbers of seniors that qualify for the seniors' benefit, like understanding how many people are on social assistance and why they're there, and maybe more money in the pockets of those on any type of fixed income. So we just go to the end of the conversation far too often. Let's start at the beginning. How and why people are not at school or how come and where and why they're sick. And maybe we'll be able to save some money. And close all the tax loopholes. <laughs> that one for sure. Uh, anything else you want to add this morning, Mark? No, that's it. Thank you very much. Good to have you on the show. Bye-bye. Okay, bye. You know, I keep pushing back against uh, a nationwide tax, an additional tax on the super wealthy. You know why people will push back against? Because they don't want government to have any more of their money. And there's a decent argument to be made that, hey, you know, more money in the government's pocket doesn't necessarily make things better. Because it all boils down to then their decision-making and how and where they, and why they spend money. But closing the, just the tax loopholes. And just look at what we saw in the Panama Papers. Just imagine if all of that income was taxed here in the country. Boy, we'd stop worrying about whether or not I pay 18 or 19% pretty quick. Let's take a break. When we come back, uh, there's some interesting, troubling stories coming from the council out in North River. Jim's in the queue to talk about that. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. Uh, let's go to line number three. Good morning, Jim. You're on the air. Yes, good morning, Patty. How are you this morning? Great today, sir. Thank you. How are you? Oh, not too bad, sir. Uh, I attended a meeting at the town hall here in North River last night. As a matter of fact, I was representing some of the people here from the community of North River. Uh, we were, uh, there's been a, a situation out here. It uh, started roughly about three weeks ago. Uh, the bank the bank notified the council here in North River that uh, was some irregularities going on. Anyhow, uh, up to this point, I've, we went to the meeting there last night, and there's apparently there's substantial amount of money missing. And uh, we asked the um, mayor last night, uh, matter of fact, I asked the mayor last night, had there been any RCMP involvement? And he says, no. We don't know why there's not an RCMP investigation if there's a theft involved. And, uh, you know, we can't seem like to get any questions. Every question I asked the mayor last night, uh, I can't tell you. I can't tell you. And, uh, you know, people are getting fed up with it over here. You know, I mean, uh, we had our council—excuse <clears throat> me—we had our council office out there closed for over a, a week, and the excuse they came up with was the council was closed for Easter. But what it was, the lady that was working in the office, she was under suspension for uh, two weeks without pay, and then uh, a couple of days after that, uh, they took a, a resignation from her. She resigned. And uh, <clears throat> like last night, now we've asked a lot of questions, and nobody don't seem to be no giving us any answers. So, well, give me an idea of some of the questions you're asking, because my understanding was the RCMP were called last night to the council meeting. Is that true? Yeah, that's what we were just. I was just going to tell you that one. Now. Okay, go ahead. Sorry. We were talking. Uh, we were talking in the, the chambers, and all of a sudden, uh, Mr. Early didn't want to know what was going. Uh, that we were asking all those questions, and. Uh, between him and another uh, another uh, councillor, decided that they were going to call the RCMP. But when the RCMP came, they, we we left the building all together. And when we went out, RCMP was talking to us, and they say, "This not the this not the way this should be going." <clears throat> There's a theft out here in the council office, and it's like everything has been covered up. <clears throat> Okay, so you're asking about that one particular issue. Wouldn't the community have to provide uh, an annual audited statement so that people could know exactly how much came in where, and when it went out and to who or to, and for what? Oh, 
Paddy, we don't know what's going on out here at all. <laughs> That's unfortunate. No, no, because I, I, ran, I ran for a position out here a little while back uh, for a counsellor. I, I took it to Supreme Court, but I lost at that tamper room with ballots. A little oh yeah, I remember that story. I, 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 I yeah, to be honest, I, I don't know what to make it. of that. Pardon? And I, I oh, think, uh, excuse me. I think we, uh, the Honourable uh, Christa Lynn Howell, should get personally involved in this matter because I think there's uh, more than this going on. You know, the people here in North River, we know there's a theft. We know that it's covered up. How do you know there's a theft? Well, it's been it's been out. Yeah, but what does that mean? What does that mean? We know there's that because it's been out. Because, I mean, the, 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 the people out there are talking about it, and the bank has already notified the what he called. But uh, Mr. Early, he didn't let nobody know. It's three weeks ago, and he said, well, I asked the question last time, had the RCMP been involved? He said no. And I asked him, why not? He wouldn't answer the question. <clears throat> I mean, how do you know that the bank said there's been something suspicious happening? Well, uh, the bank the, the bank called them. That's the reason why they closed down the building. And that's the reason why they let the lady go after. And, and that's a documented fact that the, the town clerk was fired because of some financial shenanigans? Or people are well, guessing? No, yeah. Well, they, they put her that uh, in that uh, she resigned after. She was on suspension. And then a couple of days after that, uh, you know, was I was called Dougie, turned around, she resigned. <clears throat> yeah, and like I said, and then last night, I was representing the people in North River, and this council speaks up. She said, by the way, she says, you're a guinea pig for the people. I'm not a guinea pig for the people, Patty. I'm the representative of the people in North River. Well, I mean... So that's all I got to say, Patty. Okay, Jim, I appreciate the time this morning. I'll have a look Thank at you. it. Take care. Thank you very much. You're welcome. Bye-bye. Uh, let us go to line number four. Harry, you're on the air. Yeah. Uh, Patty, uh, good morning. Good morning. Good morning. I'm doing okay, thanks. How about you, Harry? Yeah, uh, I'm the dead loss. Dead died there. He put 11, right? Sorry to hear about that, Harry. Yeah. How old was your dad? Uh, 84. 84. Yeah. What happened? I'm really sorry. My condolences to you and your family, Harry. Yeah, you, uh, you're. I uh, thank you very much, my old buddy. You're welcome. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, my uh, issue now on 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 the road again, my, uh, Patty. Patty. Mm-hmm. Is uh, the road is not still not done, eh? Are you calling from the beaches? Yes. Okay, yes. right on, Harry. Uh, so the road's not even done, probably, not even started, it's paddled, it's dirty, it's big ones, right? I think someone sent me some pictures from your area yeah. about how nasty it is. Is that also the area where there's uh, some of the shoulder has gone away? Yeah, always. And uh, there's a big drop-off there? Yeah, uh, uh, on the beach, you, you see the beach there now? The beach, the, 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 I'm going beach street. When's the last time you had any road work done in your area? I want to see if I can find those pictures just to remind myself what's going on. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but, but you, you look into it, Betty, and 
and see what's all about with I can have a look around and see whether or not there's any road work even scheduled for this year. I'm happy yeah, to do that much it's anyway. It's awful now because the fellow who goes up there, my next door neighbor, going up just, just from on the point, like you say, he's up on the point. Eh? Next year on the plate, right? Yeah. Okay. Me always there. Let me see. Well, I'll have I'll have a look. Okay. At, I'll have Terrible a look at line. the hold on, Harry. I'll have a look, see whether or not it's even on the priority list for this road season or whatever else I can find out. I'll do that for you. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You do that for me, old buddy. No problem. Yeah. And uh, and uh, thank you very much. Anytime, Harry. Yeah. Take good care of yourself. Yeah. You too. Yeah. All right. Bye bye. Bye bye. Let's keep going. Line number one, beaten. You're on the air. Good there, Patty. How oh, yeah. are you? I'm doing fine. Thanks for asking, Pete. And how you doing? Yeah, not too bad. Uh, I, I don't know if you can recall, I caught you a while back there about uh, my wife there with cancer, and she had to pay all this money for drugs. I may remember. Okay. And where are we now? Uh, well, right now, I, uh, I, well, I tried to get some help from the cancer, uh, Canadian Cancer Society. They wouldn't help me, so I contacted uh, Derek Bragg's office and just just well to to contact the funeral home. Uh, they never done nothing for me, so I, I contact Mr. Paul Den, that's the PC leader. Well, I he's one of the members, yep. Yeah. yeah, I contacted him, and within a couple of days or a week, um, we had it gone through that we got help for help pay for some of our drugs. So, with, with the government we got now, the, um, I don't know what Aggie and Ferry, I, I guess. They never had sense enough to do a, do a surgery, and now they're trying to run the province. So uh, I think they should be talking booted out. Well, nothing's really changed uh, when it comes to this government and access to different pharmaceuticals. There's actually been some drugs added to the provincial program. So I don't know if it's necessarily one party or another here, but we do have a, again, like everything else, it's not that we don't have money. It's that we have a problem with how we spend money, where we distributed money, where we focus the money, where we focus government policy. I think that's the bigger conversation. Yeah, it is. Yes. Well, this is it. We got we got nobody in there. They got the, they got sense enough to, uh, to spend the money in the right places. That's the problem. Yeah. But I mean, if there was help out there for for my wife, why didn't the government tell me that there was help? Why did I have to go to somebody else and then find out that there is help there? Well, you shouldn't have to do that. You know, that's where when we no. contact anybody at government, they should be able to I- either acknowledge that they have the answers or they know who has the answers. You know, exactly. just not just ignore the plea because you might be caught off guard. It's like sitting here in this chair. People ask me questions. I have no earthly idea what the answer is. But I'll try to find out for them as opposed to, well, I don't know. Too bad. Good luck. Well, see, it all comes down to petty. It comes down to that mighty dollar, right? I mean, the government is, is afraid to tell people that there's help out there for them. Because they're afraid they're going to lose money on what they're, what they're trying to get money off. Yeah. This is the problem. This is the whole idea. I mean, you know, the people's there putting people in, and, and the government's not doing nothing for them. Why, why are we voting for them? You know? Uh, Derek Bragg, I mean, if, you, if you're not even for the law, you're not going to get nothing from Derek Bragg. He, he's better for a dog. He's turning his for politics. Well, I'm glad you got some additional help. It's too bad you had to jump through a bunch of hoops to find it, but I guess I suppose at the end of the day you got what you needed, so that's a good thing. Well, it seems like this is what we got to do. You know, I mean, it's not only me. There's a lot of people out there in my, in my position, you know, in, in my condition, uh, I should say. But, uh, you know, when, like I said, when you got to overjump them and, and go to somebody else to find out what's right and what's wrong, 
what what have we got a government for to not tell us, you know, the truth? Why not come out with it and try to tell us the truth about it? Truth will set you free, Beaton. That's what they say. <laughs> I appreciate the time. Good luck to you and the wife. Uh, thank you very much, sir. You're welcome. Take care. All right. Bye-bye. All right. Uh, time for a break. When we come back, tons of time for you to get on the program to talk about whatever you want to talk about. Don't go away. Join us for On Target, one hour in which Linda Swain examines topics that mean the most to you. On Target, weekday afternoons at 1 on your VOCM. Welcome back to the program. Let's go to line number five. We're going all the way to Fredericton. Say good morning to the CEO at Music NL. That's Rhonda Talk Lane. And I should get the clicker. Good morning, Rhonda. You're on the air. Fredericton yet. I'm going to be going today. <laughs> oh, you're going today. Safe travels. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, we're leaving later this evening, but we're pretty pumped. Uh, the province is well represented at the East Coast Music Awards again this year. I think we have some 45 nominations, but there are two particular artists that are going to receive honorary ECMA awards. Who are they? Uh, that's a good question. Is well, I can tell you who they are. <laughs> Yvette Lorraine, she's a classically yeah. trained uh, soprano, and Gordon Quinton. You know, Gordon is part of a band as well called Fretboard Journey himself, Craig Young, Sandy Morris, and Dwayne Andrews. If you ever get a chance to pick up their record or to go see them live, they are guitar aficionados, maestros. It's extraordinary stuff. So we punch way above our weight. So what can you tell us about the 45 ECMA nominations and some things to keep a look at or keep an eye on, pardon me? So, well, just to jump back to the honorary, they're they're really important because those are really thoughtful awards that are usually done uh, by the board of directors or a group, um, you know, a, a jury. And I think Yvette has ties to Cornerbrook, and she's uh, she's uh, in doing some really cool stuff. And we always love doing our honorary awards. But as you mentioned, we've got over 45 nominees this year. And though I haven't confirmed it officially with uh, with Andy at the ECMA, but I think it could be one of our best years ever, which is pretty cool when you look at what we've come through over the last two years as a, as the, as a, I mean, well, the world and the music sector. Um, the other thing that I, well, I want to highlight that I think is, it's really cool is, of course, we've got an abundance of talent and musicians, but we are fronting really well when we look at the industry as a whole. And that's something uh, our board and, and I've been focusing on is growing the sector. So all the support you need to have around you to be successful as an artist and a musician. And we're just, we're just killing it in that area. And actually, well, of course, uh, VOCM. You're up for a few awards yourself. Yes, Stingray's in there for three. I think it's VO is in for... Well, New Country NL is Media Outlet of the Year. We are nominated, I can't remember what the category is, and our very own Greg Smith, of course, the program director here, he's nominated for Media Person of the Year. He is, and we've got First Light Fridays on the on the docket as well, which is cool. So we're seeing our industry. We've got, also got some graphic designers in there, Atlantic Music, so a company that has pivoted over COVID to change their model and how they do business. Because, of course, years ago, Atlantic Music would be producing CDs. Now, while some people are still doing that, uh, the world's changed. So they've reinvented themselves and uh, providing uh, tech solutions for company, for, for um, independent artists. So we're really doing well when it comes to the sector that needs to be there to support our artists, plus then all the amazing artists. So we've got three of our members up for three nominees each. And the exciting thing is they'll, uh, some of them will be playing during the Rogers Award Show tomorrow night. That's quote the Raven, Kelly McMichael, and Justin Fancy. 
Very cool. And inside Album of the Year, there's six nominees, four from this province. So Caroline East and then Kelly McMichael, Quote the Raven, Ruben Raker, also nominated in that category. Let's talk a little bit about the bounce back. I mean, sometimes people look at the local music scene as most people are doing it as a hobby, when in fact the vast majority are professional musicians. When you couldn't get a gig and you couldn't get a crowd, you know, there was some support coming from different levels of government, but the bounce back is going to be key. Just like in hospitality and tourism, how's it looking out there for music it's looking really really good and we're doing some there's different things happening but I, I remember a conversation I had first when I started uh, really early on uh, when I went to music and L with Alan Doyle and and myself and Alan talked about kind of our two groups that we do have pro- professional artists you know that are exporting around the world they are this is how they feed themselves this is how they put groceries on the table and there are people out there that are um, they do it as a hobby but these are our two groups that we need to have both. So when those people that are out around exporting and touring the world and telling people to come to Newfoundland and Labrador, when, when our tourists come and when, when all the people come for come home here, we also need those people that are out, you know, working really hard and professional and working five, seven nights a week um, at the local venues and the local scene. So we need to have both oh, sure. and support both. But it's looking really good, and I think the, the bounce back is going to be amazing. Someone I can't forget to mention who's already uh, gotten lots of coverage this week is Kelly Loader. So Kelly's up for Songwriter of the Year along with our uh, Ruben Rake, which is amazing. I actually uh, PBR'd uh, Canada's Got Talent last night. I know she performed as one of 18 acts to make it to the semifinals. Is this now all about crowd voting? Um, yeah, of course, the judges last night would have got to pick their two out of the nine. Yeah. So I don't I don't think we know. I don't know how that rolled out because I was watching it, too. But uh, a big piece of this now is to vote, vote, vote. And we've got 24 hours to make sure Kelly Loader gets into those finals. <laughs> yeah, let's do it. And we're pretty good at that stuff around here. I initially said Kelly Loader is from St. John's. I believe she's from Botwood. Badger. Or Badger, okay. Not too far from my hometown of Grand Falls, Windsor, yeah. So a lot of people don't know, but that's where... Uh, Kelly started, and she shared a little bit of that last night about um, through the church getting, you know, getting her songs and writing, and she's just an amazing songwriter. Of course, she won Music NL Songwriter of the Ron Hines Music NL Songwriter of the Year this year. So um, we just got such a strong representation going, and the the energy and the excitement, and there's already people on the ground. I've already been talking to Quote the Raven are there, Dean Stairs. Of course, uh, Dean, another... um, former chair of the East Coast Music Awards located in Lewisport and has got his own record label out there. So we've got people sprinkled all across our province doing some great things for our sector. A hundred percent. And, you know, regarding Kelly Loader, I guess I'm just another bloody townie trying to own all the stars. <laughs> yeah, make sure we get Badger in there. But And, and that's uh, we've got young Abigail. I don't know if you've heard of Abigail. She's a country star. She's still in high school. Um, she packed up with her family, and they, I think, started the trip yesterday. And she's from out... Um, closer in the central i think um area we also got brad and mel simmons who have already arrived up there and they're from charlottetown out in you know out near eastport so we've got people a lot of people from different places all across our province representing newfoundland and labrador and it's going to be so exciting we're going to be inviting everyone to uh come for a visit this summer for come home year while we're at uh, ecmas and doing some work on that and it's just going to be really exciting but there's there's so much to talk about over the next five days that are going to happen but the biggest night is tomorrow night the awards night and that's going to be um presented by rogers people can actually watch it live which is super exciting 
Awesome. I just want to give a shout out to one of my favorites, Janet Cull, also nominated in the R&B Soul Recording of the Year with, uh, I think the song is called uh, Hear It? Yeah, I think it is called yep, Hear It. I wanted to give her a shout out. Janet is doing amazing things, and uh, I think she's already left her head up, so we'll be seeing Janet soon. And fingers crossed, I, I really think we're going to, uh, hopefully when we speak with your your team Friday morning or Thursday night, we're um, we're talking about some of the awards that we, we stole Thursday night. I can't wait. Look forward to it. Uh, safe travels. Enjoy the weekend. Thanks, Rhonda. Okay, Patty. Take, Take care. care. Bye-bye. It's Rhonda Talk Lane. She's the CEO at Music NL. Let's go to line seven. Bob, you're on the air. Morning, Bob. It sounds like you're in a barrel. Oh, I'm sorry about it. Any better now that I'm closer? No. If you have some speaker, it would be helpful if you take it off so we can hear you. No, it's the only phone I got, right? Uh, let's see if we can just pot him up a little bit, Ben, and see if it gets any better. Let's try, Bob. Go ahead. Okay. I don't think uh, anyone in the, is making the sacrifice that Newfoundland is. You know, uh, I don't think anyone has abandoned so much oil, in, you know, in the Western world. Oil that really hasn't been utilized up to date. And, uh, uh, yeah, the way things are evolving now, you know, and nobody is in worse shape than Newfoundland is in. But, oh, say, what about our oil? I'm sorry, where are we going? Uh, I don't think anyone is in worse shape in the Western world than Newfoundland is in, and nobody's abandoning so much oil on use as we're and making the sacrifice that we're making. Hello? I'm listening, even though it is hard to hear you. But, I mean, who's abandoning the oil? I'm not sure what that means. It's kind of difficult to know. I mean, if you read between the lines from the federal environment minister who's trying to have it both ways, his name is Stephen Gibo. He's saying it's not up to him. It's up to the Impact Assessment Agency of Canada. Now, the the issue for abandoned orders, it was assessed under a past regime. Now it's been stiffened, tightened up quite a lot. So the minister says it's going to be a very high bar to pass to see any additional offshore oil projects beyond abandoned order. But I suppose... We'll all have to wait and see. But before that's even a thing, we need to know whether or not oil companies are going to try to make their way to the province and or the country because at this moment there is not one single project being assessed at the the Impact Assessment Agency of Canada. Nothing. Nothing onshore, nothing offshore. Yeah, nobody seems to mind uh, protest that here. Uh, to encourage, you know, to get the government... Uh, you got carbon taxes. They're doing everything to discourage uh, the, 
the production of oil, and but no planters seem to be very complacent about it. Well, the carbon tax isn't really an oil industry issue. In fact, in the province of Alberta, up in the oil sands, the companies, to a man, to a woman, supported the concept of a, a carbon tax. The carbon tax is an issue for individuals, and whether it be the impact on filling up my own rig, in this province, by the 7th, I guess it is, it's going to be... Uh, 11 cents per liter. It will have an impact on the price of different goods, especially food, but it's not a deterrent to the oil industry. Yeah, but I, I, uh, I'm amazed at Newfoundlanders. I don't hear many calls. Only people I ever heard talking about this oil business, Doc O'Keefe, to be honest. And I never heard anyone else. There may have been others, but I've never heard them. So I'm, I'm uh, amazed at how uh, complacent Newfoundlanders are about this. When we, uh, we're in the worst shape of any place in the world, and this is billions of dollars, and how quick we can dismiss the billions of dollars and be on the phone every day for better ferry service, for, for better health service, and everything comes down to a lack of money. So it don't matter how much you browbeat the government, they haven't got the money. You know, I, I, we're like children. We don't seem to understand that we gave up the billions of dollars. We lost billions on the upper church, so we lost our history. We well, but the government pushed for Bay to know it. Pardon? The government was out there supporting the uh, release of the environmental assessment for Bay Nord. It's not like they turned their back on and said, who cares about oil? They said the exact opposite. Yeah, that's the uh, provincial government, yeah. But the people that it's up to is the federal government, and uh, we, we need to browbeat our, our provincial government to get them to lobby the federal government, I guess. But that's what happened. Uh, oh boy, I didn't see much of it. Well, it got approved. I guess the proof's in the pudding, or I guess it's in the result, and it has been green lit. Now we're just waiting for the company itself to say whether or not they're going to sanction it and move forward, which I, th I guess they will. Penny, I want to uh, explain how the oil can be used for good, and how, you know, some people uh, can't get off of. Uh, uh, climate change. You can't even uh, uh, change your mind for a moment or, you know, or be a bit flexible. But, uh, oh my, what am I trying to say, Patty? I'm losing my train of thought. Not sure. Yeah, anyway, uh, it, it could end the war in, uh, in uh, the Ukraine. If we, uh, 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 Banned Russian oil. Uh, that's what's uh, uh, financing the war. Is Russian oil for in large part, but of course we don't import any in this country. No, but uh, uh, Germany and uh, United, not a lot of Europe gets all their oil from Russia. And if they uh, abandon Russia, if they ban Russian oil, they wouldn't be able to finance their war. And if they kept uh, sanctioning uh, the oil, even after the war is over and Russia couldn't recover, we might get rid of Putin. Yeah, I, I don't know if that would be the end result, but just yesterday the European Commission uh, brought forward a proposal that they're going to have a six-month phase-out of Russian crude imports in full to the European Union. Yeah, 
strategically, uh, and uh, they don't want to help uh, the United States, or they want to help uh, battle uh, inflation. So, uh, I mean, why can't we have uh, ex ex exploit more oil off our coast and use it for good, for, you know? Use it strategically to help end the war. I mean, if that don't change your mind, the people being slaughtered and uh, and, and raped yeah. and killed, and I mean, not all the same person now, but if, if that don't change your mind, uh, you know, uh, that you could stop that with the use of our oil, and, and that's no... It can be done, but that's ways down the road, and we can only hope that the war is over by then, when there's even the opportunity to export a drop into the European Union, or wherever the case may be. Uh, the big issue for the Europeans is, beyond crude, it's natural gas. Some 40% of the natural gas uh, used in uh, the EU comes from Russia, so I'll add that to it. Bob, I appreciate the time. Anything else before we go? pretty sure I get it. You're saying that every single person that is of the Catholic faith has some sort of moral opposition to homosexuality. Well, that's not true. I mean, there's homosexual Christians. There's homosexual Catholics. Yeah, but I'm talking about the mindset. That's the same. No matter what culture it is, it's the same mindset. All right. Take your Bible literally, and you can change that mindset. What's the point of preaching to them? Like I'm not preaching to them. that he's not a nice all right, Bob. I don't lecture them. They can do and think and feel what they want. My question is, why does it bother them so much? Because if it doesn't impact them directly, I'm just not so sure why there's so much sanctimonious response and comments and vindications or vilifications of people who are not of the same mind. That That's my point. People can think whatever they like. I mean, it's not up to me, right? But you can't accept that you can't uh, change them. The way you talk, I don't know if you just want to make a speech or if you expect that that's going to make a difference. Well, is it okay if I say whatever I like? Yeah, but I think I'd like to explain to people that try to talk to those people as if they can change their mind. Uh, you know, it's frustrating. Oh, but I get to say whatever I like, Bob. If you do, then guarantee I do. Yeah, I, I, I shouldn't say whatever you like. I shouldn't? But, uh, you can't. But, uh, oh, hello? Yeah, I'm listening, Bob. As yeah, painful as it is. <laughs> okay, I do have to go, though, now, Bob. Appreciate the time. Okay. Take care. Bye-bye. All right, let's take a break. Don't go away. And welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number five. Good morning, Francis Scully. You're on the air. 
Oh, good, good morning. Uh, thank you for taking my call. My pleasure. Thanks for calling. Yeah. Um, so I, I didn't hear all the discussions, and I agree that um, what is happening in Ukraine is just heartbreaking. It is absolutely awful, and it has been entirely funded by um, oil and gas. There's a person called Bill Browder, and I would recommend to everybody to look up his talks about how Putin is a... Uh, criminal and how he has he he has stolen all the oil and gas money uh, a lot for his own use for that of the oligarchs and of course to fund the horrific invasions not only of Ukraine but uh, the Russians have done this sort of thing in many other countries including Georgia Syria the Syrians are still suffering from the appalling Russian campaign there Anyway, the tragedy for all of us is that all of this is funded by fossil fuels, and there is a very tight link uh, between fossil fuels and attacks on democracy all over the world. And um, the latest International Power on Climate Change report was being filed in February, when Putin began his invasion, and I think um, his invasion was probably planned to bury that report, because if you remember, Putin boycotted the um, Glasgow uh, uh, Conference of the Parties um, last fall. He boycotted it, and some of the top leaders in the International Power on Climate Change are Ukrainian. Svetlana Kraskova is in uh, Kiev. She was offered a chance to leave. She's staying with her, well, I hope she's still alive, actually, with her four children. Uh, and she's one of the lead orders, or authors of the International Panel on, Panel on Climate Change. And she, like the other 1,600 uh, scientists, are begging us not to invest in any more fossil fuels because burning fossil fuels is destroying, uh, is funding criminality. It funds all the attacks on democracy. The Koch brothers who are big in the oil sands are the people who have funded the Mount Pelerin Society, which has done everything possible to destroy democracy here and everywhere else. Uh, so there is no such thing as clean oil, and we just cannot burn any more fossil fuels. And it is a disaster for us because our economy is entirely built on oil, and I'm not sure how we're going to get off it. Well, I, I, I don't think uh, the economy is entirely built on oil. We've had a long-term over-reliance on it. At this moment in time, it's about 10% of revenue that came into the province last year. It's nationally about 5% of GDP, so I think it's more political than it is actually economical when we t- or financial when we talk about the impact. You know, in certain provinces, here, Alberta, Saskatchewan, it's a much higher percentage of GDP if you look over a 10-year average. But on the national stage, we talk about it as if it's the be all and end all when in fact it's five percent of gdp so i think we've got to put some context to some of the politics because political rhetoric drives a lot of what people think is going on versus what's actually going on thank you patty and uh, you probably know a lot about you you just told me a lot of information i didn't know i I thought it was higher so actually that's but what i understand and, and help me with this i have actually been trying 
to work with, with my financial advisors to divest from many fossil fuels in my RSPs. And my understanding is that that's very difficult to do in Canada because Canadian banks are still investing in fossil fuels. In fact, since 2016, so I actually thought that it was the military who drove the global economy. But globally, I just learned that we're spending $15 trillion on fossil fuels. We, meaning the entire human population, not just you and me, uh, and $2 trillion on uh, military. So the banks and the Canadian banks are... Uh, very involved involved with this. I haven't been able to find a way to invest my uh, my little pension plan that does not fund fossil fuels uh, because we're still investing in the, the banks. Our banks are not switching. I looked at the numbers like. Oh, there are billions, billions. We're, we're still spending billions, and since the Paris Agreement, we've actually spent more. So um, I don't know how to get our banks to switch from funding fossil fuels to funding renewables. Oh, I think there's a an international shift in uh, access to capital for oil and gas companies, and for the creation of what are mutual funds that are absolutely 100% built on alternative forms of energy companies. They're out there. Uh, yeah. I, I have one um so i think these things are organically naturally happening but when it comes to the financial sector their role is quite clear their mandate to their shareholders is very very clear it's maximizing profits asap so if it you know whatever the final throws of fossil fuel means and that could be decades worth of final throws the last ounce of profit that could be squeezed out they'll go for it so i mean that's simply how they operate now companies that are growing albeit at a different rate. You know, if you try to compare ExxonMobil and their quarterly profits to a clean energy tech-based startup, which indeed will have lots of growth opportunity, but nowhere near the revenue stream, those things are, they're going to pass each other like ships in the night at some point over the next few decades. So those investment opportunities are 100% out there. That's really good to hear. That is really good to hear. But I have, but because when I, um, asked about this, you know, I was given a brochure that I could invest in these sustainable funds, and then when I looked up, there's a group called Corporate Knights, and they actually uh, report on all the different banks and their investing, but the Canadian banks are still investing very heavily in fossil fuels. Of, of course, they're going to squeeze whatever last bit of profit they can get out. I mean, they invest very similar to how individuals invest, right? So it's the long term. If you're going to be knee-jerk, panicky about your investments, you're destined to create yourself a financial problem. Like even some of the funds that, you know, we've had some tough years. You'd see your, your bloody fund, you get your annual report, down 4%. But if you sell that and try to start from scratch with that $1,000, we'll say, all of a sudden the 35-year window doesn't really average out anymore. That's why some of these guys who can afford to take a few knocks along the way, banks, so I mean by guys, they can, they can stay with something that might not be a, a great investment 50 years from now, but it still works for them, and it still works for how they invest my money. Of course, remember, because the bank doesn't have any money. They only have my money. Um, anyway, I'll leave it at that. Anything else you want to offer this morning, Francis? Well, I'm just wondering when we're going to have serious conversations here about just transition. 
Well, the problem with that is that it means something different to everybody. Is it the government's reliance on oil royalties? Is it the types of jobs that are available? Is it the focus of the individual with what they see as a long-term viable career? Is it the opportunity to focus in on the most vulnerable as we transition? Is it about retrofitting buildings or is it about abandoning, abandoning oil? Is it about expanding wind? See, it just means so many different things to so many different people. And when that definition is so loose, it's hard to be focused, isn't it? Because it might mean something to you, something different to me, something different to the Premier, and something different to Ben Murphy. So that's what we got to try to figure out is what exactly are we talking about? Because then we can have strategic conversations as opposed to all hands running in a thousand different directions. That's really good. But, and it is a huge topic. That's what I'm saying. I think we need to have... But it is the topic that I think all those things you've listed, we need to be discussing. Oh, sure. Absolutely. We need to be discussing them every, every day, you know, like a different, or every week or every month or whatever. But I think we need to be having, uh, I think, like, there was a lot of really good work went into the health accord. And I think we need a just transition accord because, yes, how are we going to use, what, what, uh, you know, are we going to go to wind? Are we going to do solar? And how do we develop that here? Where is that happening here? I don't know. Uh, and how do we? And what would how would what would work for each community in Newfoundland and Labrador? It has to happen at the community level. And um, and then how does that affect everybody? Mechanics, people who sell cars. You know, all there's just so many implications. But this is, this is, I don't have a clue, <laughs> but I, I do want to learn. I want to hear, you know, how, how to do this, how are we going to do this, how do, and of course, for me, just transition is inclusive. It does make sure that we look after the most vulnerable and that we leave no one behind and that it's inclusive and it represents people of, uh, different genders, different colors, different languages, different everything. So uh, diversity and inclusion, I think, are very important. Sure. And, what, and, and then and just transition. But how are we going to move to re- renewables? When, when are we going to have those? Where are they I in think this are, province? Those yeah. discussions are ongoing. They are. Um, but again, we don't have a clear understanding of all of the different moving parts. So it makes the conversation a little bit scatterbrained versus the kind of keen focus required. Uh, I'm off to the break, but I appreciate your time this morning, Dr. Scully. Thank you. And thank you very much. Thanks for all you're doing, and good luck. Thank take, you. Take care. Bye-bye. All right, let's take a break. When we come back, uh, Tanya Joy's in the queue. She's a tireless advocate for mental health, and, of course, it's Mental Health Awareness Month. We'll hear from Tanya right after this. Don't go away. Got plans for midnight? Bring your VOCM along with the best soundtrack for every night, anywhere. The VOCM All-Night Show. Midnight on your VOCM. Welcome back. Let's go to line number two. Say good morning to the Liberal member from Gander. He's the Minister of Health and Community Services. That's Dr. John Haggie. Minister Haggie, you're on the air. Good morning, Paddy. How are you? I'm doing okay, thanks. How about you? Good, thank you. Good. I just wanted to ring in to provide a little bit of uh, backstory and clarity about the uh, um, mental health crisis line moving to 811. Uh, for some years, uh, probably nearly 20 years, it was actually done by the staff in the PAU at the Waterford, and they, they did a grand job, but as their workload has increased, we recognised that we needed to help them out uh, and allow them to spend more time with the folk who came through the doors. So um, with our um, 811 helpline, we added into the RFP last year a requirement to uh, train up to deal with mental health crisis calls. Uh, That uh, went live on May the 2nd, 
And so uh, when you uh, call 811 now, you'll be asked if this is a mental health crisis call. Uh, if you press the appropriate button, uh, that call immediately gets flagged across all operators as the next one to be answered. Uh, and the option is also bilingual. It's uh, English or French. Uh, and these individuals have been trained up to deal with mental health uh, crisis issues. Uh, the purpose of this was to make uh, a one-stop shop for health advice um, in the same way that we're doing with our step care model. So there's no wrong door, there's no wrong phone number. And 811 has now got a brand and a recognition as being the place to go if you need um, uh, uh, out of hours or um, semi-urgent advice rather than 911. So um, we are anticipating uh, um, that uh, this will be a fairly seamless transition and certainly the company have trained up uh, all of their staff and added extra resources in the expectation of the call volumes. It's not like we're trying to cram all the calls into a small bucket. We've made the bucket bigger. So I think it was important to get uh, uh, your audience to appreciate that this was being done about integration and expanding the service rather than for, for any uh, other motive. Okay, so but can semi-urgent equal and see the same results as crisis? So just help me understand. So I'm someone who's in a mental health crisis. I call 811. Do I leave a message to be called back or do I speak with someone immediately? Because it's different if I'm concerned with, you know, where can I get a rapid test or where can, do I qualify for a PCR test or, you know, I have a pediatric question. So do I speak with someone if I'm in a mental health crisis? Yes. What happens is if you indicate that this call is a mental health crisis call uh, and there's a, there's a screening when you ring 811, uh, that uh, call will be flagged across all of the displays uh, for every operator working that shift and the first available one will take it. Okay. Um, and so it's, if I heard you correctly, it, as opposed to having to remember 737-4668, it's just I was been simplified to 811, just like we talk about emergencies and 911. Do I get that right? Correct. Okay. Uh, anything else on that front? Uh, no, I think it's important to realize that this was something that the Recovery Council that reports to me directly these are people with lived experience as well as the advisory council on mental health which is kind of the uh, the healthcare providers and stakeholders this was part of their recommendations to us uh, during the uh, uh, the um, development uh, of our uh, uh, step care model so uh, this was done very much on the recommendation and advice of people in the mental health community both providers and consumers the uh, there's a newly minted Minister uh, for Mental Health Concerns federally, and we know that it's Mental Health Awareness Month, and we should be talking about it more and more, and the new facilities on budget and on schedule, all those things. But the way we approach the system, because a new facility is simply bricks and mortar, we need a change in tune, whether it be for access and or how operations are handled day to day. Uh, give us an understanding of some conversations that you may have had with the federal minister, because it does require federal guidance. We have a lack of, lack of national standards on a variety of fronts, but it's critical important to get it right on the national scene when we talk about mental health. Have you spoken to this individual personally? Oh, yes. Uh, twice, maybe three times now. Uh, one of those occasions, our mental health director did a presentation of where we were with Towards Recovery and the low barrier access that we'd uh, instituted and the step care model. So you get the, the level of care you need as close to home as possible. That starts with mental wellness and our bridge the gap suites and these kind of things. And in actual fact, Minister Bennett said this should be the standard for Canada. 
those were uh, that was a paraphrasing of her words she was very impressed uh, and we are in the process of arranging uh, follow-up calls between um, her staff and ours to do some more operational presentations for uh, the federal uh, staff in, in her department. It was an extremely good series of meetings. So a variety of people uh, at Confederation really have a difficult job. I'm going to go out on a limb to say the person with the most critically important and difficult job at this moment of time is Dr. Megan Hayes. She's the new Assistant Deputy Minister for Health Professional Recruitment and Retention. What's, like, I mean, you, you folks get uh, mandate letters as ministers. What's hers regarding timelines? Because we can talk about health accord and tenure implementations, but the immediacy of the problem here is just enormous, especially when you factor in things like we're using doctors on rotation from the University of Ottawa, and that's helping, so says Dr. Sean Connors and others. But what's she been told given the immediacy of concerns, whether it be rural communities of family doctors or what have you? We started down the road of recognition of this and putting some uh, plans in place for for short-term fixes, Uh, and we we introduced those last October. And one of those was actually the the, uh, designation of a a senior executive in health, uh, who is now Dr. Hayes, uh, and she'll be on deck uh, going through her orientation uh, at the end of next month. Uh, So uh, she's winding up her uh, clinical work at the moment. So uh, we've had uh, preliminary discussions, uh, myself and the Premier. Um, We have um, planning uh, in uh, in progress. There will be uh, work that she can walk in to take on, um, and this will become part of a medium and longer-term approach. Uh, She's very aware of the issues around primary care. She is a rural primary care physician herself, so she comes from that world. But she's also, uh, in our uh, preliminary conversations, referenced nurses and other uh, health providers uh, that we are uh, critically short of. So um, we have stuff in the pipeline. We put $30 million into a bridging plan before uh, the uh, the end of last year. Um, those uh, proposals, those uh, grants and bursaries, they're all up and running and available and are seeing interest and uptake from physicians. Um, we have $14.6 million in our budget for, for primary care uh, and the uh, collaborative team clinics. Um, the, they are very appealing to physicians. And certainly what we hear at the moment in the public uh, is very much about access to primary care and, and family physicians. But I think you've really got to realize that we have a significant shortage of registered nurses. We have difficulties with uh, therapy recruitment, fewest. Um, we did uh, two years ago increase the number of LPN PCA seats and they graduated so they're actually in the workforce now. 30 new ones in Central for example. So you know increasing the number of seats at Memorial University's uh, School of Nursing by 25% good thing. Can you talk about the collaborative care clinics and the again I, I suppose the one stop shop you might not see need to see GP you might need to see an LPN and that person may indeed be in the clinic. You've made comments in public that there's capacity available, but yet at the exact same time, and I'm sure you've seen these stories, is people have applied through Patient Connect NL, and there are weeks, if not months, waiting to be placed or assigned to one of these clinics. So if there's capacity, why is the wait time so long? Because you can't register 11,000 people in a day, Paddy. What we did was when they uh, applied and registered online, there were some preliminary questions, and on the basis of that, they were triaged into three groups. Those people who needed 
early appointments within the next two to three weeks, those people who needed appointments soon in the next month or two, and then those people for whom no priority could be assigned uh, on the basis of the information they provided. The first two groups have been contacted and have been registered, and they are working their way through the third group, I believe there's just slightly over 7,000 of the 11,000 that registered that are in that group. And uh, Eastern Health have put staff on. Uh, and I think in actual fact, they increased the number of staff over the course of the last four weeks uh, by uh, maybe a factor of 100 percent to try and get through those calls sooner. Everybody who was on that list who supplied an email who has not been contacted has been contacted electronically to explain the situation and given an off-ramp if their clinical situation changes. Let's talk surgical backlog uh, for a second. So we've heard from Dr. Sean Connors regarding the numbers of people awaiting a cardiac procedure, but it's across the board. So some $27 million came to the province from the federal government to deal with this particular matter. What does the conversation sound like with the NLMA? Because, you know, we can have operating theaters, but if we don't have an anesthesiologist or a, uh, an operating room nurse or a surgeon itself, how do we even deal with the backlog with money as opposed to human resources? And that was the tenor of a discussion myself, the Premier and the NLMA had, uh, literally an hour ago. So from my point of view, the, uh, the, issue, the issue there is... Um, He's still there, Paddy. I am. You know what just happened there was the emergency alert system test that just buzzed in, but I am here. And, and I recognize it. Sorry, I had to call you on this phone because I'm uh, at the back of the House of Assembly. Um, uh, anyway, that system works, so that's good news. <laughs> yeah. from, the point, from the point of view of the surgical backlog, that was, a, that was basically the first comment from uh, the uh, two other surgeons in the room, apart from the two retired surgeons who were also in the room, was essentially that we had... Uh, uh, a problem with nursing and support staff recruitment. So what we're looking at is probably going to uh, have a, a collaborative task force or, uh, kind of arrangement between uh, the NLMA uh, and government uh, to identify, you know, the key stakeholders. So there'd be physician reps, there would be nursing reps uh, and reps from other um, organizations that were involved in um, uh, providing support to the OR. Um, but the solutions to maximizing the throughput in the OR in actual fact lie elsewhere too. Uh, one of the challenges is, uh, you know, we need to move patients out into, uh, uh, into long-term care or personal care homes. Um, our placements are continuing at the, the rates they have in previous years, but in actual fact, the demand has gone up. Uh, so uh, there were interesting discussions around that element. Uh, but it's very clear that we, we do need to have some targeted um, effort uh, to, to deal with this and a plan. And obviously that will involve not just Eastern Health, because that's where the, the, the current uh, uh, discussion has been focused, but the NLMA were also quite focused on the fact that this had to be done provincially. Uh, and that was very heartening. So we'll be meeting with them and others over the course of the next uh, well, week or two uh, to, to set up a mechanism uh, to get that sorted out. We are, however, in uh, the same storm as other provinces, but our boat isn't quite as leaky as I think people would believe listening to, to some commentators. Uh, there's 35,000 people alone in Regina who are waiting on a surgical backlist. Uh, so um, uh, we are a better placed because of the way we've managed to con continue with some of our surgeries during COVID because of the way we did our COVID response. 
So uh, it's not all doom and gloom by any means. Uh, it, it is obviously awkward and uncomfortable and distressing. Uh, I know from my own experiences as a surgeon uh, how families and, and patients feel when uh, when their procedures are are either delayed or take longer than they wish. And, you know, uh, we need to fix that. It won't be fixed overnight, but we're working on a plan with the NLMA and with other stakeholders. Uh, hopefully we can get a very quick answer to this one because I'm going to be late for the news. But you mentioned long-term care. For someone who's sitting or lying in a hospital bed that is medically able to be discharged but cannot be because their bed is not available at a long-term care facility, notably in Central, so those two facilities, 60-bed facilities, still not up. The folks that occupy that medical bed in a hospital are paying a fee. I think the number is $39. Is that fair? Should it be waived while we wait for the opening of those two facilities, or those two homes? The, the ALC bed rate for, uh, for acute care is, is something that comes around from time to time. My focus, to be perfectly honest at the moment, is to talk to my colleague, Minister Lovelace, who is somewhat distressed with the uh, contractors uh, in Central because this is, uh, this is a building issue. Uh, this isn't a health issue. Um, no, I'm just wondering if the fee should be waived while they wait through no fault of their own. That's an interesting comment, Paddy. Happy to uh, consider that with the staff. I appreciate your time this morning, Minister. Thank you. Take care, Paddy. Take bye care. Bye bye. It's the health, uh, health Community Services Minister, John Haggie. Let's take a break for the news when we come back. Hopefully, you're in the queue. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let us go. Line number one. Good morning, Tanya Joy. You're on the air. Hey, good morning, Paddy. How are you doing? I'm doing okay. Listen, thank you very much for your patience while the minister was on. Oh, no problem. No problem at all. <laughs> so you and I had a brief uh, off-air chat yesterday afternoon, which was quite enjoyable and enlightening. You are doing some tireless advocacy work to bring together an increased community to talk about mental health, to talk about survivors of suicide inside the family. Give us an idea where this started and why. Um, so as you said, my name is Tanya Joy. I, um, I grew up in Placentia. Um, and um, it was important for me to reach out to you at this time because it is Mental Health Awareness Month. Um, so giving you giving me this opportunity, um, I really appreciate it. Um, I think it's important for me to be honest about my own mental health struggles and my own lived experiences. Um, I uh, had made my own attempt in 2007. Uh, back then, there was not much support at all and um, the shame that I did feel at the time was very strong um, so after being released from the Waterford Hospital spending six days there um, I hit it I hit it up until um, unfortunately July 13th 2019 um, I lost my <laughs> sorry <laughs> take your time uh, my brother Jody, um, who died by suicide, um, when that happened, I feel that everything that I be buried for 15 years resurfaced, and I faced not only the grief of the pain of losing him and watching my family's grief, but I started to feel my own survivor's guilt. I'm like, why did he die and I survive? So I feel that my survival is to do what I'm doing now. Um, so I made the choice um, to make it my mission to be a part of stigma reduction um, for suicide prevention and to pro give some mental wellness activities to our community. So um, July of 2021, I created uh, the Joy Run 50 Ultra Marathon Race. Um, this year, it's its second year, and it's sold out again with 100 registered runners. 
Um, the mission of the Joy Run 50 is to promote mental health um, through the joy of trail running. Um, this event really brings a lot of awareness to suicide prevention. And we just wanted to create a safe space for people to share in their challenges and to heal from their losses. And out in nature, there's no better way to do it. That's where mine began. Yeah. And, you know, it, it all takes a certain uh, motivation or an, uh, an event in your life to drive you to be as focused as you are and as, to work as diligently as you are. So when you describe to create or to expand a, a community, yeah. help us understand exactly what you think that means for you. Um, I think that when the Joy 150 was over for last year, I'm like, do I wait till next year again now to be able to give back? So um, my partner and I discussed other options. So um, my heart was going in this direction. Um, I created a foundation called the Joy for Jody Legacy Foundation. Um, it was created uh, back in November, um, and I received everything um, through our provincial government for the through an corporation. Um, this really is created just to work with individuals and other organizations to offer support groups. Um, educational workshops um we even uh, want to offer emotional support time through the foundation through equine therapy we have our first um horse um she's a 21 year old belgium draft montana and she lives here in the ghouls um, at a stable and um the foundation we also want to do some fundraising activities to to be able to provide these services to our community critically important let's just talk about yeah. the open and honest conversations that we need yeah. to have i know you've been attending meetings uh, led by people like tina davies my dear friend yeah. you know i'll just give you a personal uh, a personal story before we get on to how important it's been for you i went to the funeral home this is uh, several years back and it was someone uh, who i knew had passed and i was just making my way to the parents when someone asked and i was with an earshot and said what happened how did he die and so there was a little buzz in the room as there always is at the funeral homes in the parlor and the mother said he hung himself he died by suicide and the the place went deathly quiet. You could hear a pin drop. Nobody knew what to say at that point. Nobody knew how to react and how to offer their condolences or have a conversation, which just to me screamed volumes. It was yeah. very much unlike any other cause of death, pretty much. Yeah. So all of a sudden, what would have been normal questions and exchanges and offers of condolences and what have you, it just stopped dead in its tracks because no one knew what to say. How important That's is right. it to just acknowledge what happened, talk about it openly and honestly, because if not, the grief extends for years beyond. The situation becomes bleak and left in the shadows to toil. So how important is it to be just honest and open and have legitimate conversations yeah. because death by suicide is still just a death. It's still a death. Cancer, suicide, heart attack car accident let's talk about them the same yeah like when he passed i was always open about it i kind of word vomited a lot and i needed to talk about it i needed to get it out um and a couple of friends of mine at the time found me this support group so the survivors of suicide a lost support group that tina davies who um, is the founder of the richard legacy foundation um i went to her first my first meeting probably five or six months after Jody's passing. And it allowed you to honestly be raw and open about your story, about who they were, the loved one that you lost, and that they died by suicide. And you can openly talk 
about the story and there's no judgment everyone there are there for the same reason their grief may be different along the path because since my first meeting mark in february of 2020 to now i'm in a different place of my grief than when i was there and her group and the people in that group have guided me along and give me the like the the stepping stones to get to where I'm to now and allow me to do what I want to do. And when I used to first talk about it, I know I made people uncomfortable. I could see their body language and their reaction. And that's okay because before I became a part of this, I was kind of scared of the suicide word because we don't know. Like another learning tool is if someone's reaching out to speak to someone, the person who's listening, how do they respond back? Like that is another educational piece that person being comfortable and really listening and be able to respond back. There's so much that's missing and there's so many gaps in this that I feel that yes, our healthcare system are doing their part and there's only so much that they can do, I feel. And so I think now it's time for community to come together, shift and create this change. And I want to be a big part of making this change happen. What can we do based on this telephone call to expand your circle, to grow the community? What would you like the listeners to know about what they can do and how they can join or what I can do? Um, the Joy 150 race has reached beyond where I thought it could. And if anybody do want to read about it, we are in, in the works of uh, making a website. They can go to Eventbrite just to read about it. Um, there's some other media coverage out there about it. If, the, the Legacy Foundation is just in the beginning stage. So um, doing fundraising or people want to make a donation to it, they can make it to the Joy for Jody Legacy Foundation at gmail.com. There is a bank account set up through CIBC. Um, and even just just allowing people in your life to have that space to feel how they feel. I, within the last few days, it kind of... I had someone come to me, a person that I dearly love, who asked me two questions. Would you be mad at me if I killed myself, which is a term that I don't like to use. I say die by suicide. And would you miss me if I died? And I told the person I would not be mad and I would really miss you. And then a couple of days ago, I went for a run on a trail and I was feeling really heavy. And I'm like, what is wrong with me? Like, why am I feeling this way? And her questions were just running through my mind. And I'm like, I didn't give the right answer. So when I reached back to this person, I told him my story, and I'm like, when I woke up, my first thought was, I'm so happy to be alive. And that was my answer to her. Some people are just lost along the way. They need help. They need support. And sometimes there's a family history of suicide. There could be some history of mental disorders or substance abuse. Um, We don't know, but we have to come together to have more resources available to people. Yeah, and, you know, people will spend a lifetime wondering how they didn't recognize the signs. We hope people don't beat themselves up too much on that front. But if you have an inkling that someone is in a serious crisis, you know, it's one thing to ask, are you okay? It's quite another to ask a direct question about whether they have any intentions or ideations of suicide. And don't be afraid, because if we don't ask the question, we'll never get the answer. Uh, So for folks who don't realize, the the Joy Run 50 or Joy Run 100 is a trail run. Much different than running around on the concrete jungle. It's a different experience. I know it has been for you, Tanya. And I really appreciate what you're doing, and I appreciate your time this morning. 
Oh, thank you for having me. And again, if anybody do want to reach out to me, uh, my email is tanya.joy at hotmail.com. And um, I really hope that people find some um, hope from this conversation today. And I'm always here if you need anything at all. Stay in touch, Tanya. All right. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Take good care. You too. Okay, bye-bye. Bye-bye. Hey, good stuff there. Uh, let's go ahead and take a break. When we come back, we're talking woodland caribou. Don't go away. Saturday morning, join us for the Irish Newfoundland Show. Send your requests to irishnl at vocm.com or submit them online at vocm.com. Welcome back to the show. Just before we get to Hollis on line six, so a caller just called into Ben Murphy said between Rocky Harbor and St. Paul and the GNP, tons of caribou on the road. And coincidentally, that's what we're going to talk about with our caller on line number six. That's Hollis Yetman. Good morning, Hollis. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty, and uh, thanks for taking my call. Happy to do it. I'm, I just want to commend uh, MHA Perry Tripper, uh, Upper Lake Melville, uh, on questioning uh, Department of Forestry and Wildlife yesterday in the House, and uh, he got, actually got a response from uh, ADM Steve Balsam of the Forestry and Wildlife Department that the uh, government is going to reconvene the Woodland Caribou Recovery Team, which has been defunct now for about uh, 15 years, not active at all. And it's uh, it's high time this was done. As you know, I've been a strong advocate of uh, of caribou and caribou protection in southern Labrador, especially. And uh, this announcement reconvening the Woodland Caribou Recovery Team is a big. And I just want to make sure that uh, politicians and bureaucrats hold the uh, government's feet to the fire and uh, and get this implemented and and on the go as soon as possible before we get into another hunting season uh, next winter. So that'll that'll happen uh, before you know it. What's the status of the woodland caribou? Because, you know, when we talk about the Mealy Mountain caribou and all of the woes in, the, in uh, Labrador in particular, what about woodland caribou? Well, the woodland caribou are the Mealy Mountain caribou, the Lac Joseph caribou. Oh, okay. Red, I didn't know. And the red wine caribou herd. So they, they are the woodland caribou, and the... Uh, uh, they, they are referenced as such. The uh, George River caribou, are, their numbers are uh, are still in trouble as well. But uh, in particular, we're talking about the stuff in southern Labrador, which, in essence, is uh, is hunted by the uh, Quebec uh, Quebec Inu in, in on the Quebec North Shore. So that that's the challenge is to uh, is to stop the hunting. I know the federal government just made an announcement that they were going to unilaterally uh, protect uh, caribou uh, woodland caribou in Quebec by uh, offering up some legislation that protects habitat. And, and uh, hypocritically, there was no mention of the bullets that are killing caribou, woodland caribou, just, just the habitat from logging companies. So uh, it's it's uh, uh, everybody's afraid to mention it because they view it as a traditional hunt, I guess, by indigenous people. But, uh, but this hunt in particular is uh, by no means traditional. It's uh, spotter planes are used, drones are used. Uh, wide track snowmobiles with uh, dozens of hunters uh, in one particular group that kill, that wipe out uh, the fragmented groups that are in southern Labrador totally. So they're basically separated from the rest of the caribou in, in those areas. And, uh, yeah, so, so this announcement, uh, we can't do it in the absence, uh, uh, people on the recovery team, we can't do it in the absence of the Quebec residents and Quebec government, as well as the federal government need a seat at the table. So I, I'm glad to hear this is, uh, this is moving forward. The whole concept of enforcement, whether it be on the provinces, rivers, or in the hunting grounds, is important. But, for instance, during the pandemic, we had some of these enforcement officers monitoring borders, not doing what they were actually hired and trained to do. So is it the lack of will to deal with uh, 
indigenous hunters or Quebec hunters coming across the border, indigenous, indigenous or otherwise, or is there something that I'm not seeing? Well, it's. I think you're seeing it like everybody else, uh, uh, Patty, and there's, there's some unknowns, but the one thing we do know is that Minister Bragg made an announcement this winter that he wasn't going to put his officers in harm's way when large numbers of Quebec residents entered the province. So he basically said this open season on caribou because you're too far away, we can't get at you on snowmobile, and, uh, and too, your numbers are too large, we can't safely uh, initiate uh, investigations. So... Uh, if we're not going to stop it in the field, and I've been saying this all along, same as, uh, same as MHA Trimper, that uh, we have to get at the table. And, uh, you know, we're into the third year of a $5.4 million funding agreement to protect woodland caribou. And we finally uh, made an announcement that we're going to reconvene a caribou recovery team and we're going to start talking to the people in Quebec rather than trying to enf- uh, enforce uh, legislation upon them, which we know is not working. So. Uh, I, I don't think it's a lack of will. Uh, I think it's a lack of resources and a way to respond to the hunts when they uh, when they happen. In, in, in addition, uh, we don't have good partnerships with the uh, Quebec uh, enforcement authorities or the federal enforcement authorities, which are uh, Canadian Wildlife Service. They are completely absent from the scene, and I think they basically said uh, we're hands off on this. So. Uh, Newfoundland is left to go it on their own, and that's that's a tough call when you're uh, talking about these remote areas, right? This is a bit of a strange question, but I'm going to ask it anyway. People wonder about the money, the effort, the human resources to protect any species, uh, whether it be for enforcement or accurate head counts or whatever the case may be. Beyond folks who are outfitters, hunters, environmentalists, why is it important to protect, for instance, in this case, the woodland caribou? What is the overall general benefit? I know what I think it means, but how about you, if you can uh, just express your point of view to the listener? Well, it's, uh, caribou numbers are, in, in, uh, in particular, in trouble right across the country, woodland caribou in particular. And, uh, and, and they're, you know, indigenous people will be the first to tell you that they're cult- culturally important and, uh, and they mean a lot to, to indigenous people. Um, and we can't uh, let species disappear off the land when we know that we might be the cause of it. We we can stop it. I mean, there's some factors that uh, you can't stop, and um, but but this one we can. We can prevent a species from disappearing off the land. And the ecosystem is uh, complex. Uh, we don't know what the disappearance of one species will mean will mean for other species. So it's uh, every, everything's connected, as we all know, and and. Uh, and we, you know, we have to do what we can to protect each individual species if it means anything at all. And uh, and this, in this case, it does. And I, th- I think that answers your question. I think it does because when we look at the the ecosystem, if you have an imbalance, it inevitably hurts other parts of the ecosystem. We might be focused on woodland caribou, but when you see whether it be impact on habitat and or other species and or their predators and or their prey, when one thing happens, the ripple effect it goes all across the ecosystem. It's all of a sudden not about about just one species absolutely and and uh, you know it's it's important in in the ecosystem and it's important culturally and uh, uh, to the people of this region and and in, in lots of areas within Canada of course so it's important and uh, and this announcement to reconvene the caribou recovery team I think is an important one and we need to have all the players at the table including Quebec and the federal government and uh, you know we need a timeline that uh, when it's going to move forward and uh, and when we can everybody can sit down to the table and really discuss what's going on we know what needs to be done bullets got to stop killing the caribou that's that's what needs to be done but uh, maybe 
you know, <laughs> those discussions are uh, are going to be a challenge. High level. I uh, appreciate you making time for the show. Hollis, thanks for this. Thanks, Patty. Take Bye-bye. care. Bye-bye. It's Hollis Edmund. Talking in the Woodland Carbo and the Carbo Protection and Recovery Program. Let's go ahead and take a break for the news. When we come back, we're talking about whatever's on your mind. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go. Line number five. Merv, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Thank you for putting me on. I know you're very busy there. No problem. I want to raise the issue uh, publicly, as we've done uh, in a press release uh, from um, CNL yesterday, about the trip limit uh, situation in the crab fishery. Um, it's become pretty untenable, um, Patty, and uh, and some, some big concerns. From my standpoint, as an advocate of, of a number of things, but certainly um, of safety at the very front end, uh, we're starting to see a, a very big safety issue emerge from all of this. You know, we've taken some comfort uh, notwithstanding some of the, the broader and bigger issues of, of fish management and 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 this and the situation that imposes on, on on safety and so on, but we've taken comfort in the individual quotas and the ability for you know for for fish harvesters not to have to compete and get out there uh, in unsafe conditions and weather conditions and so on. But now that it seems that that uh, comfort has been negated by the idea that there's a trip limit. So Just one second, Mark, because you know what it is, I know what it is, but sometimes in, when we talk specific industries, not everyone is even going to understand what a trip limit is. Large mm-hmm. boats, weekly trip limits, I think it's 20,000 pounds, if I'm not mistaken. Yes. The smaller vessels are capped at 3,000 pounds. So what exactly yeah. is a trip limit, and why does why is it an accident waiting to happen? Well, look, here's the situation. You know, there's a huge economic pressures on fish harvesters at this time of the year to uh, to move and 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 to catch the, the you know their, their their quotas because of, of, of the economics associated uh, uh, with it. So uh, when uh, fish harvesters get the word to go and they have to wait, you know, I talked to a, a, a crab fisherman. Uh, fish harvester here in North Harbor, and on Monday morning I said, "How come you're not out, uh, you know, recovering recovering your traps and, and the crab?" He said, "They got to wait for a telephone call." And you know, um, yesterday evening he got the call and said, "Maybe it looks like Wednesday for you." And so I said, "Well, you know, weather conditions is okay." He said, "Well, it doesn't matter. We're going anyway." You know, this was a fairly small size. Uh, vessel that they were operating in and so they actually had to wait for for this morning to get to go things are pretty good there today but so I, here's the situation that, that if if that uh, these weather conditions are not conducive to going uh, 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 crab harvesters are going anyway because they're worried uh, number one they 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 want to get a catch there or prosecute the crab before it starts to go south in terms of the molting and, and soft shell um, we're not there yet, but uh, it's it's uh, it, it's coming, and it will happen. Um, and the other part is that there's a concern that uh, market prices will soften, and uh, they'll lose money on that front. So you know, there's an economic pressure that that, that makes that push uh, for fish harvesters to go. The other thing is that the the uh, lobster fishery opened uh, in this bay and along the south coast on the weekend, and it's very difficult 
for harvesters to prosecute two types of fish. It's not impossible, but very, very difficult. In some cases, impossible for fish harvesters to prosecute the crab fishery and at the same time prosecute, you know, the lobster fishery. The lobster fishery will not last very long. I mean, it's there, and for the first two or three weeks, that really is the essence of of your crab catch or, or your lobster catch. And if you if you're not there and if you're not doing it, so now if you have to if you have to compromise on that and 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 catch the crab that should have been already brought in, uh, then there's another issue, and we're not that far away from uh, the uh, from the cod fishery uh, as you know we start to move the line on catching crab if that's not harvested then there's a there's a, a competing force there as well so i mean there's a huge driving force for harvesters to get out to sea once they get that telephone call and therein lies the pressure that's on them to go in very unsafe conditions bottom line yeah i mean i think the same thing happens even though there's not the economic pressure it's maybe just the Pressures brought to bear by individuals, even in the recreational food fishery. Oh, well, I only get limited opportunity. It's not that great out, but off I go anyway. I know it's a much different thing when we talk about a commercial enterprise. The trip limit and why it was installed is also something I've never really quite understood. You know, I think the driving force came from one of the large processors, which actually is a, an offshore harvester as well. Mm-hmm. But inside of this envelope, can you help me understand anything beyond the rationale for, you know, ensuring this happens all the time, right? Whether it be about sea ice at the beginning of the seasons and what have you. Why is a trip limit even a thing? Like, I, yeah. I really don't even understand the yeah. concept. Well, there is a balancing act there, and of course, everyone understands things within reason. Um, you know exactly what what that would be would depend on the circumstances. But when it becomes a very widespread uh, issue like it is now, I mean, the bottom line is capacity. There is uh, not enough capacity for processors to and 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 get this to bring catch uh, in from outside the province. Um, including St. Pierre Miquelon as well, and uh, all the parts of, uh, of Nova Scotia, Quebec, and so on, and at the same time uh, process the, kind, the the amount of uh, material that's being uh, taken by harvesters here in the province. So, you know, it, it's been an evolving issue, Patty. It didn't start overnight. I mean, last year it was a big issue. This year it's bigger. I think in large part that's a, uh, got a lot to do with the economics of it as well. Oh, uh, you know, the idea of having to, with, with the price of fuel, and we know all about that, you know, to have to load up with fuel and, you know, take a trip out, to, uh, you know, 150, 160 miles, sometimes less, whatever, uh, five or six hours to return, and only have to turn around and do that because you, you've been restricted in, in your limit. You know, that, that's that's a driving force too, but if there's not enough capacity to do it, then maybe there has to be some some measures. And we've got to take something. We just can't sit on our hands because the problem is becoming, is evolving into something much, much bigger. It's pretty bad now as it is. Um, so maybe there has to be some decisions made about whether or not you can process the, the uh, you know, uh, the outside material coming in at the expense of what's happening here uh, locally, domestically. Or we got to open up the doors and say, look, if there's buyers out there now that's ready to come in and take this product, uh, maybe it's a good time to experiment with the and uh, to work with the the auction uh, system that's there. That the Green Report uh, had, had encouraged, by the way, not the first one to bring that up. 
I mean, I'm in the fur business, and I've been uh, for 40 years been dealing with auction houses. That's how I sell my product, the best system in the world. So bottom line is that, you know, if there's, the capacity is not here, the ability is not here from the processors to take this material because of all the issues and circumstances that's been brought, by, that's been brought on fish harvesters, then we have to do something about it. Exactly what the what the, the answer is. I mean, I'm not I'm not entirely sure I got the best answer, but there has there is certainly something that can be done, Patty. Yeah, you know I'm I'm always torn, and I think some of this is uh, about serving two masters. If you're the FFAW, you've got some processing plant workers that mm-hmm. you represent, and some inshore harvesters, and some offshore harvesters. So I guess three masters. Mm-hmm. The issue of bringing in outside buyers. I mean, we have a broken business model. The fishery is the only place where you get bare minimum for the raw product, right? I mean, mm-hmm. it's just not, mm-hmm. it does not appear anywhere else yeah. in any other industry. But at the same time, the processing sector, if we had outside buyers bidding at the wharf, for instance, to maximize the value for the harvester, that's great for the harvester. But when and if some of those bids come in higher from a Brazilian buyer, a, a UK buyer, an American buyer versus a local buyer, then all of a sudden an already struggling seasonal operation like a fish plant, unless you're out in Arnold's Cove, all of a sudden, we do away with some of those jobs and opportunities. So I, I don't know where the balance is, but I know yeah. we undervalue the raw material. Yeah, no, you're right. Absolutely, you can't be oblivious to that. I'm certainly not oblivious to it. When you make all of these arguments, I mean, uh, you want to get too idealistic about it all. But the bottom line is, when you start losing jobs and opportunity because we can't bring a product in from outside, yeah, that's an issue. But a lot of the issues that's you know that's it, happening today has evolved. It's brought on to us by policy, by by years of allowing it to to get there. I mean, you know, the idea that uh, the the crop not that long ago uh, was that we've got too many processing plants well what the heck look if there's if there's if there's a million processing plants out there and processors have got their money on the line about whether or not you know they can stay in the business under the circumstance that they're given it's their money it's free enterprise you know what's the big outcry about that because if we had the processing capacity now we wouldn't be talking about this issue that, that we are today and I mean the other thing is that we've restricted buyers we've restricted buyers to what's happening in this province you know I mentioned fur a minute ago and and, and the that I deal with. It's an international marketplace out there. And if I had to depend on what was happening in this province or even in this country and that we couldn't rely on the international marketplace, we're dead in the water. So when we talk about commodities and say, you know, we start to cherry pick how we go about selling this and say, okay, well, we'll eliminate, you know, all 80% of the possibilities of selling and getting the best possible price because we're going to save it for our buyers in the province. And again, I know you're talking about jobs and opportunity for what hap- what's, what's happening in this province. Yeah. But if, the, if, it's, if it's competitive, if a, if a buyer from, from outside this province can come in and pay a price and make a profit, you can't tell me that the buyers in this profit on the doorstep are still... It's just, it's just about the scale and the size of the profit that they, they yeah. want to make. And, and where it ends up, you know, you might get a bit more from a buyer who's distributing to the white tablecloth market in Manhattan versus some other finer or further processed, whether it be for those little in-crab shells that I can buy over to Solby's, right? So anyway, Merv, appreciate the time and the conversation this morning. Thanks a lot. 
Yeah, real quick, I just wanted to, 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 to reach out you know, to the Irishers and say, look, and, and we're seeing it coming through, the, the frustration and, and the asking of the questions, you know, where's everybody that repre- is representing him, CNL, you know, the FFAW and so on. Look, we are trying our best to see if we can move uh, people and to get suggestions out there. So we haven't forgotten you. And the safety issue, front and center, I'm going to leave it at that. There's going to be an accident if Pre- they're waiting to happen. Appreciate the time, Murph. Thank you. Okay, Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. All right. Final break of the morning. Don't go away. Take a break. Join us weekdays from 1230 to 1 p.m. as we discuss anything and everything that's happening now. It's all on the table during your VOCM lunch break. Welcome back. Uh, let's go to line number eight. Karen, you're on the air. Uh, hi, Patty. I'm glad to take your my call. No problem. I know that we don't very much longer for only a few minutes and it's sad I didn't get in earlier but I know you're a very knowledgeable man and I'm just wondering what did you think when Feisner asked uh, the senator the CDC down in the states uh, to have 55 years to release what's in those vaccines, COVID vaccines? Yeah, they're not the first company to do something like that, but I will say this. I don't explicably trust in full any pharmaceutical company. Okay. Um, well, anyway, that was overruled, and they had eight months yep. to release, uh, uh, I don't know, thousands of pages. So starting March 1st, they gave out so many pages. Then April 1st, they gave out more more until they finally finish, which would be within eight months. Now, the reason they didn't want to release it till, until 2076, uh, because one of the things that are in the vaccine is called Paxlovid. Uh, no, Paxlovid is an oral antiviral treatment for those who are, uh, well, in this province, it's for those who are unvaccinated and get it within the first five days of their symptoms. The okay, Paxlovid is a... In the vaccine, and it's proven here in Newfoundland. The most Newfoundlanders here are vaccinated, yeah. and they're getting COVID two or three times or more. Um, because the, that drug, Paxlovid, uh, that do not work. Now, I do believe CBC or CTV is picking up on this, and it's going to come soon because the media won't be able to shut up anymore. Because to too many people wanting to know what's going on. Like I, my brother, he had the vaccine. Mm-hmm. Nothing wrong with him. I spoke to him six hours before he dropped there with a heart attack. And I'm telling you, there's not one uh, station here that is allowing people to ask questions. Uh, in regards to this, they give their own opinions, and, and that's it. They're glued to NTV, they're glued to CNN, and all this bullshit. Okay, you don't need to curse. You mean, no, Karen? No, 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 I don't, I'm not, I'm not uh, cursing at that. Uh, and, you know, here we got Dr. Uh, the Minister of Health. Then we got the Chief Examiner. Then we got uh, Dr. Tam up there. You tell me that neither one of those people knew that that was in that drug? Well, a couple of things. It's interesting to say that uh, all the media outlets won't allow people to ask questions as you were asking questions live on this show. During the the pandemic when they were getting the the reporters to ask questions at the briefings and why Fury was there, I haven't got a clue. Uh, I'm not sure what that has to do with anything, but... Well, I don't either. But Paxlovid is not in the vaccine. You should have been on that panel. 
Why? I answer I, questions that's... from the public, not from news reporters. Because they're not telling you everything. Well, it's not up to me who gets to represent the company. That's way above my pay grade. People get assigned I'm things. I'm giving you an example. Okay. Uh, but Paxlovid is actually an antiviral that you take orally. It, it, it's not a vaccine component, but I think I, I get your point. Look, to acknowledge that you can get it and spread it when you are fully vaccinated is an important fact that we get, can acknowledge, and that's why I do think it's time for federal mandates to be discussed and possibly be dropped, because people who are vaccinated are. People who don't want it will never be. So that's where we find ourselves on that front. Would you like to say anything else, Karen, before we say goodbye and take one more call? Okay, one more thing. Sure. Is that when the uh, people start getting the vaccine, it was asked... Uh, can it cause inflammation to the heart? I was told no by three different doctors. Lo and behold, there's there's reported cases over here in Newfoundland. Sure, and it was acknowledged uh, right off the bat that that was a possibility with not only this vaccine but other vaccines. No, it wasn't. Well, it was acknowledged to me. It was acknowledged to my sons who were both in that category where myocarditis is a risk. They were told, so I don't know what else to tell you. I mean, broken heart surgery. What? No, uh, and I'm waiting for open heart surgery. I was told no by three different doctors that the vaccine would not cause inflammation of the heart. Well, that's been widely reported. I don't, you know, and sometimes I think people exaggerate what is and is not reported. The issues surrounding the potential for myocarditis or whatever the other one is also called, that's been in the news. It's been on this show. Yeah, but how long after? after as soon as it started to happen. About being jabbed. In, in people's arms. As soon as it started to happen. Probably a year after. No, no. Eddie, it wasn't. Because I was in Certainly. fear of that. Because that would happen to me. All I got to say, look, people in Newfoundland are sad. Because they will know by the fall, before the next election, there's going to be another virus out there. And there's going to be more needles to be got. Meanwhile, it's weakening everybody's immune system. But it's not just here, though, Karen. I, and I don't know why no, we talk about it like but that. Newfoundland but is one of the highest provinces that got the most vaccinated people. And it's a sin because the media got everybody scared to death. And the ones that are getting sick are the ones that got the vaccine. The ones that aren't getting sick are the ones that never got the vaccine. Uh, it's ridiculous. For hospitalizations in this province, the most recent data says you're three times more likely to be hospitalized if you're unvaccinated. And okay, that represents. told you that. Well, that's what the data shows. I mean, I, I don't know what from your Facebook who? says. Pardon me? Data from who? Well, where do you think we should get data on hospitalizations? Uh, well, I, don't, I hope it's not Haggy and Fitzgerald. Because they're wrong. And I'd and be the first one to say it. And I don't know why it would be a specific to this province conversation when the same vaccines approved in many, many countries around the world and the tens of billions of doses that have been administered. And yes, there's the potential for adverse effect, 100%. Absolutely okay, true. Now, okay, now I'm glad you mentioned that part because Germany over there, uh, 40%. They're highly, highly complications, but at 40. And that's just the 40% that was reported. Mm, I'm not so sure so, about that and number. And there's lots of countries out there, too, that won't have nothing to do with the vaccine. And they're living. Well, uh, uh, okay. and, then, and then when they do say died of COVID, they're not saying any underlying issues. They're probably telling you the age. Yeah, I'm not telling you they haven't even got underlying issues that they've been double-vaxxed, triple-vaxxed, and all these boosters as well to try to... 
people understand what the potential is for complications if you have one of the listed underlying comorbidities, that's, that's true. And I think people know that. Um, it's certainly widely reported the, the more, the higher risk for different categories, including age. So uh, again, I think sometimes we make up the fact that no one's ever said these things out loud because they have. Well, certainly I have. Uh, but Karen, you've had the last word. It's 11.59 and 30 seconds. I figured that's why I would go last, because I, I could go another round with you, Patty. Why are you, so why are you going around know. with me? I don't make these decisions. No, no, no. I mean, um, I'm hoping that Haggy or Fitzgerald uh, now just heard me online, and maybe tomorrow morning they'll call in with a comment. Appreciate your time, Karen. Take good care. You too. All right. Bye-bye. Okay. We will indeed pick up this conversation again tomorrow morning right here on VOCM and Big Land FM's Open Line. On behalf of the producers, Greg Smith and Ben Murphy, I'm your host, Patty Daly. Have yourself a safe, fun, happy day. We'll talk in the morning. Bye-bye.